Sometimes when historical figures are romanticized, we lose track of what they actually did. This week on Footnoting History, we'll be looking at the life and times of Richard the Lionhearted. Every year, when I was growing up, my parents brought me to King Richard's Fair. I won't say that going to this fair had anything to do with me becoming a medieval historian. It didn't. But it did give me an idea of what King Richard the Lionhearted was like. In short, he seemed to be one of the greatest kings ever, presiding as he did over this marvelous day of shops, food, and fighting. This opinion of him was confirmed at the end of every Robin Hood movie I saw, where King Richard returned to England, and all of a sudden things were okay again. Although ideas about who he was were different, this absurdly positive opinion of Richard may actually have been common in the Middle Ages, and for much of the period that followed. As a warrior king, Richard seemed to offer much of what their society valued. More recently, scholarly opinion has swung rather too far in the opposite direction, and Richard is more commonly believed to be, in the words of Bishop Stubbs, a bad son, a bad husband, a selfish ruler, and a vicious man. According to James Brundage, Richard was certainly one of the worst rulers England ever had. Judged by modern standards, Richard was a pretty bad king, though I think it's a bit of a stretch to label him the worst. Richard spent less than six months of his ten-year reign in England, and he left the country with a vast amount of debt that would drown his unfortunate and much-hated brother, King John. But is it really fair to judge him by our standards? I would argue that to do so is unfair, and ultimately bound to lead to an inaccurate picture of this king. Richard was the third son of Henry II, one of our favorite kings here at Footnoting History. The eldest son, William, died as a child. The second, Henry the Young King, also predeceased their father, though only after he had been anointed and rebelled against the king. And so, the crown fell to Richard. Originally, therefore, Richard had not thought to become king of England. Instead, he was meant to be the ruler of Aquitaine, and had been named as the Duke and ruled it for a number of years prior to his brother's death. I would argue that this experience had a real impact on how he ruled once he came to power. First of all, it made him closer to his mother than he might otherwise have been. Aquitaine had been her home, and Richard her favorite son. So for all of his valor on the battlefield, Richard always remained a mama's boy and respected the counsel he received from Eleanor. The extravagant court culture in Aquitaine may also have encouraged Richard's profligate spending once he became king. Finally, the future king's time in Aquitaine also caused him to see his possessions on the continent as an important part of his inheritance. These lands were also more at risk to the acquisitive French king Philip Augustus. It's not surprising, therefore, that Richard spent a significant portion of his reign as king of England in the battlefields of France. What might be more difficult to understand from a modern perspective is the money that Richard spent on crusade. Why, we might ask, would a man who had so much to defend at home decide to spend years of his life traveling to the Levant to rescue Jerusalem? For his detractors, it's possible to argue that Richard was simply a bloodthirsty individual who sought a greater challenge and glory on crusade. Others have argued that he preferred the company of men and that the long sojourn away from the women of his life might have appealed. There is, however, little evidence of the king's sexual inclinations, and he was joined by his bride-bearing Garia while on crusade. These perspectives are unfair. Many of those who went on crusade were genuinely pious and believed that they were doing the work of God. 
Jerusalem had a strong emotional pull for the people of Western Christendom, and when the papacy put out a call for crusade, Richard seems to have responded with enthusiasm. It was his decision to take the cross that would force both Philip Augustus and Henry II to promise to go to the Holy Land, though the latter would never follow through on his promise because, well, he died. While it is impossible to know what King Richard was thinking, the swiftness and enthusiasm with which he took the cross suggests, in my extremely biased opinion, that he was swayed by religious sentiment. Contemporaries also noted Richard's devotion, but again, we cannot know if they simply wanted him to seem like a religious man. After he took the cross, it took time for Richard actually to head east. This delay was inevitable, both because it would take time to raise the money and the resources for crusade, and because Richard had to coordinate with his, his departure with both his father until he died and with Philip Augustus. After Henry died in July of 1189, Richard repaired to England where he had an elaborate coronation. He then spent the next four months on the island raising money for the crusade. The king used a number of strategies to squeeze England for all it was worth. Taxes took time to collect, so they were not the ideal instrument to raise funds. Instead, Richard imprisoned some of his father's advisers, famously Renolf Glanville, and demanded payments from them for their release. He also sold offices, town charters, and parts of the royal domain. Although these measures were not an ideal way to set up a government, especially one that would have to remain strong in the absence of the king, they did allow him to accumulate the resources necessary for travel to the Holy Land. Richard did receive censure for these actions from contemporaries, but some, including William of Newborough, saw that the king had greater plans than he was given credit for. According to William, he was supposed to care little for the kingdom because he divided it or disposed of it in such a manner. But afterwards, it was clearly seen with what subtle craft he had done or feigned in order that he might drain the bags of all those who seemed rich. Others looked at Richard's attempts to raise money in a somewhat more severe light, Gervase of Canterbury, for example, wrote, The king was like a robber, permanently on the prowl, always probing, always searching for the weak spot where there is something for him to steal. On December 5, 1189, Richard left England. He then made a treaty with Philip Augustus, whereby each one of them promised to protect the other's lands while he was away and to split their conquests in the Levant. Even so, it wasn't until July 1190 that Richard was finally ready to set sail for the Holy Land. Richard and Philip Augustus led the first expedition to Palestine by sea. The decision to travel by sea meant they could arrive much faster, but it would also be considerably more expensive and must have been a difficult decision on a personal level for the English king, who suffered from severe seasickness. For all of his initial enthusiasm for crusade, Richard made a leisurely journey to Messina, where he rendezvoused with the French king. He entered Messina with such pomp and ceremony that, according to the Itinerarium Peregrinorum, the common folk talked among themselves about his great magnificence, which left them stunned. The rulers of the city were somewhat less pleased at the arrival of this ostentatious foreign king. They were even more disgruntled when Richard demanded that Tancred, the ruler of the city, give Richard's sister Joan, who was the widow of the king of Sicily, her dower, and furthermore, that he should give Richard the money that the deceased king had bequeathed to Henry II. The dispute got out of hand, and Richard soon went to war and captured the city. He then relinquished his claims to Messina and to Joan's dower, and returned the plunder his men had taken in exchange for 40,000 ounces of gold. The English king spent the winter in Messina, distributing money liberally before continuing on his journey. 
Once they left, the English fleet was plagued by storms. Despite the king's careful arrangement of his forces, three of his ships got separated from the rest, and two of them crashed into Cyprus, where their surviving sailors were robbed and abused by Isaac, the emperor of the island. When Richard heard what had happened, he stormed to Cyprus and captured it with the help of King Guy of Jerusalem. Ever pragmatic and in search of more funds, Richard sold the island to the Templars, who would be better able to hold it than he. Thereafter, Richard completed his journey and arrived at Acre to aid the siege of that city, which had been in progress for nearly two years. Soon after the arrival of the English king, the city capitulated, after receiving assurances from Richard and Philip Augustus that the inhabitants would not be killed. In return, they promised that Saladin would return the shard of the true cross which he had captured, pay a ransom, and exchange prisoners. The two kings then divided the city between themselves, thereby irritating those who had been engaged in the city far longer than they had. Richard would soon return home, bequeathing his half of the cities and his prisoners to Conrad, who had ruled Tyre and had designs on becoming the king of Jerusalem. Philip's departure left Richard in command of the crusading troops. When the time for Saladin to fulfill the end of his treaty had expired, and the sultan had not given the king what he promised, Richard slaughtered all of his prisoners in one of his most criticized acts. Here we see the behavior of an impatient and brutal yet pragmatic man. Richard wanted to keep his troops on the move, but he knew that he could not do so while he was holding so many hostages. Therefore, when Saladin was late in making his payment, Richard was left with two choices— he could wait for Saladin while continuing to feed and guard his captives, or he could kill them and depart. Although breaking his bargain with the prisoners would be seen as a breach of the chivalric code, indeed there were many contemporaries who saw his actions that way, Richard likely believed that his decision was justified by Saladin's inaction. By killing the garrison, moreover, Richard made it more difficult for his foe to hold on to Ascalon in the face of Richard's onslaught because Saladin's soldiers remembered their fate the fate of their contemporaries at Acre, and were therefore reluctant to find themselves in the same position. Once the prisoners were disposed of, Richard continued his conquest by marching his troops down the coast to Jaffa, where his men might be protected and supplied by his fleet. It was perhaps the support which made Richard's troops so successful in battle against Saladin's host at Arsov. Once they reached Jaffa, there was a debate about what to do. While many wanted to proceed to Jerusalem, thus fulfilling their crusading vows, which required them to free that city, not construct a defensible kingdom in the Holy Land, Richard wanted to go to Ascalon, because he knew that possession of that city would make it easier to hold on to Jerusalem. And here we see hints of a king with considerable foresight and strategic aptitude, but also one with a certain amount of flexibility, because in the end, he deferred to his advisers who insisted on going to Jerusalem. By January, the army would be forced to turn back, because it was clear that it would be impossible to take the city. The army then rebuilt Ascalon, largely at the King of England's expense and design. Meanwhile, Richard attempted to soothe the hurt feelings of the troops who were unhappy with the decision to abandon the attack on Jerusalem. He also forged a peace between the Pisans and Genoese who had been fighting in Acre. Finally, in April 1192, the prior of Hereford arrived and informed Richard that his country was in danger. The next day, Richard announced his decision to leave the Holy Land and allowed Conrad to be selected as the new king of Jerusalem. Before he could be crowned, however, Conrad was murdered by two assassins, an assassination which Richard was actually often blamed for, and Henry of Champagne, who was nephew to both Richard and Philip Augustus, was elected to take his place. 
Following these events, Richard announced his intention to remain in Levant until the following Easter. This decision suggests that he really was torn about where his loyalties lay. Should he stay in, the, in defense of the Holy Land, thereby fulfilling his vow, or should he go home and make sure that he would have a kingdom to return to? In the end, he made one last attempt to capture Jerusalem, but was once again forced to call off the attack before even besieging the city. According to the Chronicles, Richard refused to ever set his eyes upon the city he would never capture. Had he lived longer, many believed he would have returned to the Holy Land to fulfill his crusading vow, but that would never happen. Richard soon began his preparations to return home, but before he left, Saladin attacked Jaffa and nearly succeeded in capturing the city. Richard orchestrated a daring amphibious assault on the forces besieging the city and rescued it. After his success, he was able to make a truce with Saladin, which would last for three years, an interval likely chosen to allow the king to set his affairs right at home and then return to the front. As luck would have it, Richard never returned. On his journey home, he was captured by Leopold, Duke of Austria, and held in captivity before being sold back to England for a fortune, and that actually is a great footnoted story on its own, but not one that I'm going to get into now. He then returned briefly to England before returning to Europe to commence his war with Philip, which would consume the rest of his life. On April 6, 1199, Richard died as a result of wounds received while besieging a castle. The king was only 41 years old and would be succeeded by his brother, King John, the very man from whom most Robin Hood films would have us believe that the valiant king rescued England. The Richard that we see in the Chronicles is not the gentle old man that modern audiences tend to picture. He was a valiant, proud, brutal, and vengeful individual who was loyal to his friends but cruel to his enemies. He was able to manipulate his enemies using both troops and diplomacy and to exact an unprecedented sums from his subjects. In many ways, Richard exemplified the ideal medieval monarch, but he also failed to perform some of the most crucial duties as king and crusader. While he was not uniformly loved by his subjects, Richard's legacy remains a powerful image of medieval kingship in the modern world. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!